Sammy, how are you? Yeah, not bad. A quick question. Is it banal or banal? It's banal. Okay, and is uh, the next one... No, is... it's banal. <laughs> Never heard that before. <laughs> Even the Americans say banal. Do you know... Um... Do you know where the whale? Do you know where Witi Hiramata's whale rider is set? It's Piha. It's not Piha. It's Pangara. Ah. Oh no, it's a piano. <laughs> hey, if I told you I've got a story and it's a road trip story, yeah. Are you interested? Well, I think I don't have strong feelings about the road trip story either way. Like, if you had to summarise a road trip story, what would you say happens in a road trip story? You can't, can you? You can't summarise it. It's a series of, like, um, nuanced conversations. So, therefore, a road trip story walks the fine line between a beautiful window into the human condition or kind of boring, self-important philosophising. And, what what, what, and what's your favourite uh, road trip story? Well, I don't really have one. Uh, I mean, is, a road tri- is it really fun to be stuck in a hot car? I don't know. Why do people love road trip stories? I love them so much. Um, well, I, I guess it's because every narrative is a journey and a road trip is a literal journey, so it's layering a literal thing onto a figurative thing. Um, I don't know. Oh, God, John, I'm not feeling, I'm not feeling this. <laughs> I hope you enjoy this conversation with Ruby Porter about the writing of her debut novel. It's called Attraction. It's published by Text Publishing. It was recently longlisted as well for the Fiction Prize at the Occam's. The novel's basically a story of a road trip down the length of the North Island. Um, there's three female characters and a dog along on this road trip. We have the narrator and her kind of not-quite-girlfriend, Alana, and her best friend, Ashi. Um, these relationships are really complex and beautifully complicated. And this was a really great conversation. We tried to talk about the craft and the ache and the process of writing your first novel. Ruby is uh, super smart. She tutors creative writing in English. She's currently working on her PhD as well. Um, I think you'll really enjoy this conversation quick warning um it's a little bit sweary it's not too bad but you have been warned one of the terms people always use is that kind of as a character driven or as a plot driven binary um but i think that you could have a character driven book that still feels like a story but i think specifically with attraction it is very much it is very much about being forced to be with the narrator the whole way through and um she's struggling to be present with her two friends or her friend and her can i swear her friend and her fuck buddy okay who she's taking on this trip her lack of ability to actually interact with them and scene kind of forces you as a reader to be interacting with her more than with the story a lot of the time because she's moving into these memories and she's moving into these thoughts and she's actually struggling to be a part of her own story yeah right yeah, yeah, cool. And so keeping with the character, though, and creating that character, um, like if we create characters from parts of ourselves and parts from people we know, 
yeah. and kind of mash them up like this Frankenstein thing. What? How do you go about that? Is it just paying attention? Yeah, it's definitely, you know, it's observations. I make little notes of things that people do that I find interesting, that I think are kind of revealing concrete details. But really what happens at a certain stage when you're writing a book is that all of these Frankenstein fragments of other people that you've put into your narrator or other characters start to meld and merge and the character takes on a life of its own within your head or at least I found that and they develop in their own ways and they totally become their own person to the extent that and I won't reveal the exact story that this part of this book that this comes from but there's a character in the book where I merged two people from my life to create that character and I took one event that it actually happened in real life, but I had completely forgotten, and it's not the most flattering event, which is why I'm not revealing it. And then one of those people who read the book and was recognizing themselves in the character the whole way along, then said to me, hey, do you remember that time? And I was like, oh, because I had completely forgotten and I completely assigned it to this new character who felt entirely their own to me by the end. Ashi was the character I struggled most with, and I still think she's possibly um, the least clearly drawn in the book because she was the one that I was having difficulty with. So I spent a lot of time, honestly, I did things like online shopping where I would like buy, put things in baskets that I thought that Archie would wear and then just never buy them, obviously. But I was, you know, really trying to get inside her head. Um, I took a piece of advice from Elizabeth McCracken to get to know a character who's not your narrator. A good way to do it is to write a scene from their perspective. So I did, you know, a scene from Ashi's perspective to try to get to understand her better. Um, actually, and I took her advice too for you can write for your narrator a scene that happens at a totally different time in their life. If you're trying to understand them as a child or something like that, you, writing these kind of um, out of book writing is quite useful and quite freeing because you know that it's never, it can't end up possibly with the, within your book. Yeah, right, so it's always in the, it's within the act of writing. Yeah, it's just an act of getting to know them. But honestly, just lots of conversations with them in my head. I walk a lot. With people about them? Or no, with, with the characters. <laughs> right. <laughs> While I'm walking places and I'll just be, you know, kind of chatting with them, which sounds really weird, but, but you get to know them a bit. Um, right, so walking is something you do. Yeah, you know, a lot of. I walk to uni and back and I walk, walk my dog. Did, did you have themes? or So memory seems like a big part of this. So what we do remember, what we don't, and how we misremember, yeah. and how we struggle to remember. And there's a refrain throughout the book. I can probably remember it by heart. So, <laughs> um, the refrain goes something like, that every time you remember something, you're only remembering the last time you thought of it. Yeah. Is that right? So that yeah. kind of carries on through. So that that's, feels like a clear choice that you've made to, to keep reminding the reader of that. That's, that something, did that come early, that line? Or did it come yeah, that, that line came early. It wasn't as a refrain in the first drafts of my book. Um, I actually was using the refrain that's now the first line, don't write this down. Um, and then I decided that actually the more crucial one to the book was that idea of memory and everything you remember. Uh, every time you remember something, you're only remembering the last time you thought of it, which is a did, fact. Did yeah. you, where did you find that? Oh, I think, no, I think it's actually how it is said the first time it appears in the book is where I found it. 
somewhere online. Maybe I read it somewhere. I read it and apparently it's true that that's why our memories can become kind of both more vivid and more distant and more incorrect over time because we're actually only thinking of the last time we thought of it. Um, but why I thought it was important to this book, obviously memory is a huge part of the narrative. We're moving in between the past and the present all the time, but also because it's one of those early warnings to not trust the narrator. So we're hearing so much of the story through her memories. And actually she's, even if she wasn't deliberately withholding or lying, there's no way to know whether those memories are accurate. Definitely the idea of memory as subjective was shaping what I was writing. I was interested in things that the narrator would remember that other people might not remember, or ways of remembering things, the very subjective ways she remembers past relationships, and actually the choices she makes and what she remembers and what she chooses not to remember and how she chooses to remember people. Yeah, yeah, cool. Yeah, memory kind of happens in a really non-linear way. Yeah. Um, which is the way that this book is written. Well, it kind of, I'm struggling to figure out whether I believe this is a linear narrative or a non-linear narrative because a road, a road, um, what's it, what is that genre called? A road movie, no, it's not a road movie, I want to say road movie. Road trip. But it's like a road trip, yeah, yeah. okay. So it's the road trip genre. Comes yeah. Out of a road trip genre, doesn't it? Yeah. And there's nothing more linear for me than going from one place to another. It's yeah. It's the most linear kind of story. And hoping to generally choose the fastest route there. Yeah. 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 We're trying to get there the fastest, but yeah. it never works like that. Um, and there are heaps of great examples of road trip stories, like the Odyssey and on the road. Yeah, <laughs> which I love the Odyssey as a road trip. Yeah, <laughs> That's yeah, great. I know. Yeah. Um, so it's road, So there's this linear thing going on with one place to another. Before I go on, did you make the trip? Yes, yes. I made the trip. Okay. Yes. So it was a trip. I've been back and forth to live in all throughout my life. Right. I do have a grandmother who lives there, and I just need to say this every time I mention that uh, that my grandmother is entirely different to the grandmother in the book. <laughs> It says so in my acknowledgements. I've written a whole article about it, but I think she's still uh, a little bit insecure. So just to put it out there for a third time, my grandmother is nothing like the grandmother in the book. Um, but I was wanting to write about places that I knew well. So Levin is one of them, and I've done the road trip to Levin a lot, though I tend to not actually take the route that the narrator takes. Uh, I've been to Fangara from Auckland quite a bit, but the route that I hadn't done was Fangara to Levin. And, oh, maybe I'd done it once on a bus, but really not very much in my life, and I couldn't remember it. So I was trying to write that through using Google Maps, you know, dropping the little yellow man on streets and zooming around, but there's really no way to orientate yourself that well while doing that. It felt quite um, unreal, and I think I had places slightly in the wrong order without even meaning to, and so I knew I had to do the trip. So I did, it was a winter trip in the middle of my Masters of Creative Writing, um, which definitely gives it a very different vibe to the book. And so I knew that things, I would have to describe them as uh, slightly more burnt, slightly more yellow, the trees would have to have leaves, you know, I couldn't take exactly from what I was seeing, but it did, um, it showed me places that would have otherwise definitely not ended up in the book like why power and places like that became central because I was able to go visit them. The awful thing was that I'm usually 
they usually never have writer's block. Um, as a, it's quite a rare experience for me, particularly writing this book because I, whenever I was stuck on a certain chapter, I'd be like, oh, well, I'll jump ahead and I'll write this part. And the other thing is, while being in Whangara, I usually am always able to write. I'm usually there with friends and I don't want to be writing, I want to be hanging out, but I'm kind of getting lines all the time and I have to write them down. But on this trip, just writing was impossible. And I was dating someone who at the time was a writer and she was writing screeds and screeds and I was just opening up my laptop and staring at it. And I haven't had that experience much, but I think it was that pressure knowing that this was a writing trip. This was specifically for that purpose. This was my one chance before I was gonna hand in my masters to be in this place, these places. And so no words were coming. <laughs> That came afterwards. Afterwards, obviously. yeah, luckily. Yeah, 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 yeah. I got such a joy when I heard because I'm from Napier. Originally, yeah, and I, I think I've read one story set in Napier by Peter Wells. Oh yeah. Um, and I can't even remember what this what this short story is called, but it's a really great story. And there's something about that that just gave me like this pang of, wow. So this must be what it feels like to be from New York or to be from somewhere where yeah. there are stories told. Yeah, definitely. About that place that you grew up. Yeah, yeah. And obviously, um, growing up in Auckland, I've had a few of those, but they are so rare. And it, it, you do get such a feeling of just almost being seen or acknowledged in some way. And it's like you're somehow connected to the characters or the story. Mm. So actually, that made me... I really tried to be accurate to all the places that I was going to because I knew for a lot of these towns... It's probably the only time some of those small towns they've ever ended up in a story that's been published. Um, so it made me probably seem a little bit anal to my editors because they would be moving around lines at the start of a chapter and I'd be like, no, they can't take that turn off yet because that building is before that turn off. You know, it had to be accurate to me. I was, I really, really didn't want to get those little details wrong and have someone who lives in that place be like, oh, that's not it at all. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And when, when did the idea come to take the narrator on a road trip? Was that, that was the first impulse of the entire book. Right. It was just being in, well, I guess it was the second one. It was, I was in the, at the Readers and Writers Festival in Wellington and I have no idea who was talking or what they were saying, and I think this was entirely disconnected, but I just remember thinking, I'd really like to set a novel with two women in a batch, which is a horrific idea. <laughs> and thank God I didn't write that insufferable novel. But that was, that was the first idea, and then I knew they were gonna come from Auckland, so I thought it was gonna be this kind of manic trip to the batch and back. And then I realized, that I had to triangulate the story in two ways. So I knew at some point, I knew first that I had to have a third character on the trip with them, that it was gonna be too difficult to have these two characters. Though I wanted a sense of tension and I wanted a sense of claustrophobia to the book, I was trying to achieve that. Two characters was gonna be too much and too difficult and probably too difficult to write and too difficult to read. Realizing that I had to triangulate the trip and get them to live in was because I grew up writing short stories at Intermediate. We had this English teacher at Ponsonby Intermediate who you had to write a short story a term. We had to do a lot in this English class. And so we were always really busy during the term and I'd be on holiday sitting in Levin with nothing to do because it's Levin and you're a child and it's just nothing. There was a swimming pool, but aside from that. 
And so I think, okay, well, I'll, I'll get on to what I, one of the tasks I know I have to do in the coming term, which is write my short story. And so all of my short stories at Intermediate were set in Levin. And it was this amazing little pre-made dystopia. You know, I think I wrote one about Henry VIII being reincarnated in Levin now as the town's butcher. You know, it was such a good setting. And I had completely forgotten that I used to set all of my short stories there until I was writing this novel and I was thinking, where does it go? What is the plot of it? And I thought, oh, I have to get them to live in, obviously. But that's actually a really hard task when you've created three characters in their 20s. So I knew that I had to have a reason to force the narrator to go to live in. And that's where the grandmother came into it. Okay, cool. Uh, yeah, I think I was always reading kind of ahead of my year level a little bit. I was, um, it was, I was still reading some young adult fiction at intermediate, but I remember the shift came for me because we had this we had this very intense English teacher, so we had to be reading books like like Charles Dickens or John Steinbeck because we had to do these independent research projects and they had to be on reputable writers. So I think that was an aspect of it. But I fell in love with them when I was reading with them. And I remember the latest Harry Potter book came out during that year and I think it was the fifth one. And I'd read all of them up until then. I'd been a fan. And I bought the fifth one and I read the first few pages and I really looked at the length of it because it's, it's, it's a chunky book. Mm-hmm. And I thought I could read like a few Steinbeck books in the time I could read this. <laughs> and I just put it down, you know. And so I think, yeah, I mean, I'm sure that that's also to do with my mum. She um, let me read. She read to me until I fell asleep each night as a kid. And then I read to her while she slept and pretended to be awake. And then at the end of each chapter, I would wake her up and quiz her on what had happened. But unfortunately, children's books are quite predictable, so she usually got it right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. I think that, um, and as a teacher, because I taught for um, secondary school, and I think they've got another theory I'm working working on, um, that teachers' children are always seen to be really um, smart and curious and do all those things that you would want a child to do yeah and I think there's something about training as a teacher that gives you the skills you need to then grow your own children <laughs> in a way that is kind of like yeah I can see you know, that I, it never surprises me when I hear someone being really successful and they say my parents were teachers or my parent was a teacher yeah um, well I come from long lines of teachers right. so. <laughs> and going to be one you're going to be years. one yeah yeah <laughs> Um, it's been a long time trying to escape that, but look where I ended up. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's funny that you say that. So Harry Potter was coming out because I'm not of the Harry Potter generation. Um, when I was like Goosebumps. Oh yeah. And Paul Jennings books, and I've been away. When I was away on holiday, there was a Paul Jennings on the <laughs> shelf, and I just grabbed it, unreal. I started reading the first story, and it was called I can't remember what it was called, but it was um, first person narration. Yeah. I, and it just caught me how immediate the first person because I've been reading a lot of third person at the moment just for my own thing my own writing yeah but it caught me that how immediate first person narration is right and often young adult and first sort of chapter yeah. books are written first person because there is a conversation happening from me to you or the writer yeah directly without this kind of third thing going on yeah I'm wondering who's speaking to you or what voice this is in yeah 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 so when you when you decided to write attraction did you ever give it a go in third person well I knew the narrator was going to be unreliable 
so I knew there was um, family history that was going to be hidden. I wasn't exactly sure quite of the details of it yet, but I knew uh, that, like, you know, her white guilt was going to be playing into that um, withholding. So because of that, I knew it had to be in first. Mm. And what do you think you gain? So we'll start with what do you think you lost by writing it in first person? I think you you lose the certain... I mean, obviously, if I was writing it in third, I could have had... Uh, chapters from different perspectives we could have had more development of certain characters that might have needed it like Ashi um, and also losing that ability to really have a bird's eye view which in some places I really had a desire for in a way I remember there's a part where Ashi's driving away with Lachlan and I really kind of wanted to get to show that on the road so I have the narrator imagining it she's imagining it from the sky seeing the car but obviously, of course, she's not seen it, so we can't have a, a really developed description of that there. But aside from that, you know, I think I knew that first was right for this book. So I think voice was a big part of that. I think the narrator does have quite a specific voice. And I think that what I was most interested in doing, which is interesting when you say that it's a book that feels like a person, was I was interested in depth of that point of view the whole way through. And I think that that's what it allowed me to, to create. Yeah, definitely. And did, were you conscious of like, did it, because sometimes I feel like she's writing to somebody. Sometimes mm. I feel like she's writing to herself or speaking to herself. Yeah, it wasn't a question that I really considered so much until my editor would see me use the word you and be like, who, who is this? Cut this now. Um, which I probably did overuse it. But I feel like on one hand, the narrator's probably narcissistic enough that she's almost is imagining this kind of audience to which she's talking. I think that play of withholding and lying, you wouldn't do that when you're just talking to yourself. You know, she's trying to She's trying to construct a narrative in which she's the good guy and she's trying to quite uh, actively do that. And I think her having an audience makes that important as someone else to judge that, as someone else to judge that she's not a bad person and that's what she really wants. But then I think if there was someone specific she had in mind, she wouldn't have been so honest by the end. So I think it's only because it's not really a real person. It's an idea of someone listening to her and someone being on her side that that's what she's wanting to speak to. Yeah, right. So you see it as a an arc of revelation almost to herself of her yeah. realising the truth. Yeah, and having to come to terms with some of that stuff. You know, she's trying to tell this story in which in which she's the one who's been hurt. She's the victim in most of these situations. And she's not owning up to the ways in which she hurts people. And I think I think that desire to have someone hear her and believe her is there, but I don't think as we see in the book, she's not really good at talking to people, even people she's close to. She prefers to stay quiet. So I think if she had had a specific person in mind, for example, her mum or something like that, it wouldn't have, she wouldn't have revealed so much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and that is, yeah, it's understanding <clears throat> the type of person you are as such, that's kind of the, that's what we're all trying to do. Hey? Yeah. There's a great um, Leonard Cohen documentary made by a student before he, when he was still doing his, um, 
he was almost he was, he was reading poetry. Oh, yeah. He had the timing of a stand-up comedian. <laughs> it's, it's amazing. That's incredible. It's like a half-hour thing. But they, the documentary maker gets Leonard Cohen to sit down and watch the documentary they've made. And yeah. And film him watching it. And he's kind of really kind of flipping out over the um, what he's seeing. And he says at the end, I'm a different style of man than I thought I was. Oh, wow. That's it's, a good line. Style yeah, of man. Yeah. yeah. And it's not sometimes until you see yourself reflected back and I don't really like my photo taken on video like because I've got a small child I'm constantly having to yeah pose be videoed and yeah. kind of like ugh, and I would never want to watch them back because yeah. sometimes we're afraid of the style of person we are yeah definitely um, yeah because we are we're obviously a construct of our own imaginations and you know I hate it when my phone flips my photos over to the right way. I, I Honestly, if anyone could see me in reverse, I'm so much hotter the other way around. But, you know, it's, it's really uncomfortable to see how other people actually see you when you get used to, you know, mirror reflections and when you get used to how you feel you are within your, outside your own head. And obviously one of the, again, more banal, but um, obvious ones, examples is hearing your own voice back which you're going to have to deal with. Yeah, yeah. I'm trying not to think about it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so there are, like, there's, there's all these um, themes and ideas running through, and I know that you write poetry. Yeah. Um, and how much did you have to sort of curb, like, curb your poetic um, instincts to write the prose? Because, yeah, I don't know. Did you, is it something you were conscious of? Yeah, so... Poetry did play actually quite a big part in how I started this book because um, when I was first thinking about writing it but not quite yet letting myself write it, I started writing poems that were to do with scenes between the characters. And in the end, I did actually um, scrap those poems for parts to put lines into lines into the book that I liked. Um, and those were some of probably... Some of them worked and some of them created quite problematic passages that were still too poetic and I had to go back later and actually be like, I need to cut this scene. Yeah. I need to lose it and, you know, I can still take these couple good lines and move them somewhere else. But yeah. um, How do you feel about that kind of ruthless chopping out? I think it's, I like doing it, but I like giving myself the time to be okay to do it. Yeah. It's, it's, I'm kind of not as bad at the narrator in the book at letting go. Um, she obviously, you know, hoards her own art and hoards, hoards anything really that she can get her hands on, um, hoards relationships. Yeah. And I, hoards I, emotions. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I guess in a way, it kind of is like. It can be like a relationship, like you can know it's over, you can know it has to go, but you just want to give yourself that one more month to be sure, so that it's less painful when you do it. Mm. You know, in a way, I find um, there was a small blessing where I wrote the book in my masters, and then. I had this year where I was doing honours in English and I was just so busy because I was tutoring and I would have assignments due all the time and it was so much harder than doing my masters. And so I just didn't pick up my book. It felt way too huge. At that time it was, you know, 87,000 words and I was like, where do you start? I'll have an hour in the evening. I don't I don't exactly feel like opening a document up that that's, mm. that's that big. Because of the non-linear nature of the way that memories come in, it is quite a tricky... Like it's not yeah. like you're just following a story and you want to dip in and add more colour to this part of the story. Yeah, no. And I, I knew I wanted to make 
rather structural changes. I knew that uh, there was a character I was going to change. I knew I wanted to cut it back. And these felt like quite big changes to be making. But also, yeah, there was that definite issue with the nonlinear nature of the memories because even when I was piecing the book together, sometimes I would cut a fragment and that would mean that all of the other fragments in that chapter had to kind of shift because I tried to subtly, and I tried to keep it subtle, but I tried to interlock basically every single one in a small way. And they also just had to sound right. They had to flow on properly, orally, when I would read it out loud. And so changing one thing would often mean that a lot of things had to change. So it'd be like, I have this memory and it has to come after chapter five, but before chapter nine. Or this one has to become after the end of chapter six, but before the start of chapter eight, you know? Because though the memories are non-linear, there are threads that run through them and those threads have to stay in the right order, otherwise it's gonna to be too confusing. So you have to give, be giving pieces of information at the right time. So yeah, that was that was a puzzle sometimes. And that also then made it way, way more difficult for if I was wanting to edit it in kind of snatched hours because it would have meant having a hold in my mind of all the pieces of that puzzle and knowing exactly where they were. And after a few months time, you know, you forget it. You forget mm. what you've written. I don't know where pieces were anymore. Mm. I couldn't instinctively be like, oh yes, this section has to become that one that's in chapter 13. Yeah. Maybe that's why it's so confusing to be alive. <laughs> yeah, non-linear. It's just a straight thing. Yeah. Easy. It would be easy. Well, there are people who do that, hey, who can see things and straight, like those, they can, and people with synesthesia, how they... Oh yeah, they confusing. Arrange colors and arrange dates in their mind. Like interesting, related to that. That's mm, nice. Yeah. Yeah, there, there are just those people that I'm fascinated by who forget nothing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I almost want to use one of them as a narrator yeah. for a book one time. Mm. Do some research into mm. that because that just fascinates me. Yeah, it feels like it's gonna, it's gonna be a big thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it would probably have to be quite a large book that one. Yeah. Do you just trust your instincts when it's becoming too heavy? In metaphor and to move on with some action get some get something moving get something happening yeah something i think you... there's an aspect of instinct but a lot of that comes through the editing process for me so when writing this book i was almost a little bit compulsive about some of the imagery because i think someone's described the book to me as a painterly book but i think in many ways it's kind of like a collage book to me and i am a collage artist and what when i was writing it i would have these images in my mind or sometimes photos of the places and I would know that I wanted to describe that thing and even though for example I might have written a bad line about the dill flowers I knew that I wanted an image of the dill flowers in there and you would think if I was coming at it from a writerly perspective I could have just cut the line about the dill flowers and moved on but coming from this kind of visual perspective I desperately wanted a line in there so I'd rework it until there was one I was happy with of the dill flowers and then I could move on. And then at some point I'd have to come back and possibly be like, actually, I've piled on a few metaphors here and I need to let them breathe and I might cut that line, mm. you know. But um, I think for me, yeah, the imagery really was coming from this idea that I could see it and I wanted that setting to be seen, mm. which is entirely different actually to me, uh, was entirely different to my experience of writing the characters. I had no desire to describe how they looked. Yeah. And I actually really had to force myself to put in, because I know people like, you know, 
a few markers yeah to hold on to to imagine what that person looks like and I did make myself put them in about Alana and Ashi but I really avoided them with the narrator I didn't want those descriptions there I think the only thing you get about her physical appearance aside from description of some clothing that she wears once the only thing you get is that she's tall I think it's different readers like different things and I don't mind either way but I have sometimes been annoyed by too prescriptive a description of a character because I quite like having my own character inside my own head and I think that in this case I knew that I didn't really want to describe the narrator that much because I didn't really have a set image of her in my mind she was kind of more like a fluid entity um, that whose eyes I was seen out of more than whose physicality I could actually see and imagine very easily. Yeah, okay, so that's interesting. So different than um, the other characters who were being seen by the narrator. Yeah. So it's really, I, of, it's a real strong... I was definitely, yeah, imagining being within it. Like I had things like I imagine she had kind of like limp straight hair, but like I, I didn't feel any need to tell anyone that and I thought that it worked with her kind of level of anonymity that you don't really realize is there for so long. I like it if people don't realize how anonymous she is in many ways, but that that's actually, if they think about it afterwards, if they were asked to describe her or to say her name, they would struggle to. Yeah. You said before that there are, um, there's three characters in the car. Yeah. But there's actually four. You're right, there is, there's Bo. Yeah. Yeah. So Bo was actually a necessary plot device in the first place because there's that point at which the narrator has to go to live in to see her grandmother. And I, there had to be a reason why Alana couldn't just stick her on a bus and say goodbye. So the dog is the reason. And then the dog is what ends up trapping her in live in too. She can't just hop on a bus. She has to find someone to give her a lift in all of these situations. Um, and I think in many ways, and I was going to develop this more, but I chose not to for a reason I'll come back to. But the dog is one of the only characters she can really relate to in a lot of instances. He's the one who, um, you know, she's always ends up in the back seat, which I think is, oh, that was a very deliberate decision anyway. Alana and Ashi are always in the front seat and they're sharing the driving and she can't drive and she's always forced to kind of sit in the back seat. And she's sitting there with her dog, but she kind of quite likes that because she likes his companionship. She likes that, you know, he doesn't require talking to. And then a lot of her anxiety throughout the book comes out as fear around whether he's going missing. You know, they're in this not fully fenced property and she's always kind of freaking out about where he is. And Alana's always been like, he's just there, it's fine. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's a way for her to project some anxieties. And then she's having dreams where he's going missing. And also she kind of, her nerves raise when he barks at any point, you know, they was kind of using him in those ways. I was, did consider really developing the relationship between her and Bo, because I thought that that would be quite an interesting counterpoint to her and the other characters. But there are a couple of reasons why I didn't. One was pacing of the book. I knew that I needed to cut down the book and I thought if I really develop this loving relationship between the character and a dog, that's that's going to slow some things down. <laughs> yeah, that's a different book. And then she's a different character too. Yeah. And I think my desire to do that was based wholly in my love for my dog. Mm. And actually then I am just putting a lot of myself in my character if I want to want to make her love her dog as deeply as, mm. you know, I love mine. Mm. Um, I don't think that necessarily 
she was capable of the level of selflessness at that time in her life to love her dog as much as she possibly should have. I mean, I think animals are always going to kind of be that innocent party, you know? So there's always, uh, yeah, huge, huge sympathy for them that I think actually is a flaw of ours that we struggle in the same way to give sympathy to adult humans. Mm. You know, we're much more likely to give it quite freely to animals and children. Mm. Um, I think an example of this is that uh, CPAG, so Child Poverty Action Group, I think gets more donations than Auckland Action Against Poverty, as if adults are somehow responsible for their poverty, but children mm. are not, mm. uh, which I think is an entirely unfair distinction. But I think that, yeah, animals are always going to, again, op- operate in that same way that children do and be quite easy triggers for emotion for us, particularly, I guess not for someone who doesn't love animals, but for those of us who do, yeah, they're always going to be able to hold that emotion very easily. Yeah, but, um, Patricia Grace said in a, um, in a talk she gave recently, which I actually heard from the podcast Paper Cuts that I was listening oh, to. Oh, yeah. Um, so it's kind of like levels of, <laughs> of connection. Levels of podcast. She said that like, there were, we kind of need this new language to discuss the way that we talk about nature and the way that we think about nature that without having to personify it. Yeah, I heard this episode too. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. So do you think this, that can relate also to... Um, animals and the way we think about animals yeah I think well I think certain animals we already kind of personify and project and so we don't really need like that workers or uh, we already feel empathy for cats and dogs for example but I don't think we really go around feeling empathy for like fish and spiders and you know and I think her her comment is one more that's like quite a thinking about the planet on sort of a global sense um, and actually I'm guilty of that personification in my book, a lot of the descriptions of the land do personify it. Uh, we look at, like, there are hills that are like mountain. Uh, sorry, there are hills that are like bodies. And I talk about the sea as being a kind of womb mm-hmm. at one point. Um, so I definitely go into it. I think it's quite an easy impulse when you're trying to designate value to mm-hmm. something or importance to something or, um, you know, just to, just to see the human in it and to describe it in that way. But I think she's definitely right that it's a real failing on our part if we can't value something just because we don't see it as human, we don't see it as having kind of our level of consciousness. Yeah, because there's another dog in your um, in your story as well, right at the end. Yes. Um, and so maybe thinking about um, new language to describe how, how, how we relate to plants and animals, um, do you think we also need a new, or I feel like maybe it is actually happening and evolving, we're, we're figuring out a new language to describe post-colonial New Zealand and the mm. way we uh, we live in post-colonial New Zealand and whether post-colonial is the right word. <laughs> yeah, I think. Um, like, because you, you're dealing with that, like that's, the, there's an umbrella, I mean you begin with this, um, don't write it down and it's. Um, your narrator learning Māori, she's learning from Peter. Yeah. And clear that that's, it's throughout, woven throughout, to the point where you reference um, from um, MPK Sorensen, your reference from MPK Sorensen, what was traded for 
Oh, the yeah. Name. Yes, that list. Yeah, yeah. So you and wanted to be accurate there. Yeah. Clearly, that was important to you. Yeah, definitely. I mean, um, that accuracy was important throughout the whole book. But really what I was thinking about when I was using that list was this idea that I was taking a Pākehā narrator, I was putting her particularly in a place like Whangara where it's very obvious that this is not Pākehā land. It's very obvious that her grandmother shouldn't have ownership of this leasehold property. It's very obvious that she doesn't really belong and that she's not from there. And so one of my issues in writing the book, when I was first coming to write it, was I was like, well, is it even right to set a story there? And then I realised that I never considered that when setting stories in Auckland or in any other place where we've become kind of distanced from the fact that we're on Māori land. So I thought it was important that she goes to Whangara first and that that then is able to kind of colour every other place she visits. So remember it she's able to realise that every other place she's going to, even though she kind of knows this because she's kind of, I mean, she cares a bit about being woke, she has woke friends, um, she's from Elam. She's obviously aware that she's on Māori land, but she doesn't actually really feel it when she's in a place like Auckland. And I think it's very easy for a lot of us to not feel it in a place like Auckland, particularly living in the CBD, living in Ponsonby, where she lives. And so... That was why I wanted to start with that list, and that list is a list of items that the entirety of the CBD was traded for. So that was really the introduction to coming back to Auckland, and that was meant to be that kind of shock of, like, right, she's on stolen land wherever she is. She's on Maori land wherever she is. And then there's the TPPA protesters in that final chapter, and there's that chant, you know, whose streets, our streets. And someone says whose land, you know, and no one can really, no one can really yell our land because there are a lot of Pākehā people in those protests and so the chant just kind of dies and it makes them all a bit, all a bit aware of this thing in that one moment, you know, just when they're about to chant and then realising the inappropriateness of that. So you said before that somebody um, said, oh, this feels like an anti-colonial book. Yeah. I think the opposite. I think this is in trying to create a new language in a way that we think about and talk about and feel about um, mm. our own history and heritage. Um, this is kind of helping to do that, and you've, you've clearly made some really brave decisions and tried to, to concentrate. Yeah, so I think... One of the things that I was thinking about, and obviously one of my anxieties when I first came to writing it, was like, should I be writing about any of this at all? But then I realised that when you think, when we have those kind of thoughts, what we're really thinking is, oh, actually, I'm Pākehā and I'm scared and I'm going to let Māori deal with all of this. Māori have to write everything that's to do with Māori-Pākehā relations. And um, I'm not going to address that because I might get it wrong. And I think that that just puts all of the work on Māori and no work on, like, it's like we really actually have to do some of the work of writing about it and talking about it as Pākehā, um, which is actually interesting because it's what my narrator's failing to do throughout the whole book. She's failing to actually talk about it. She's failing to address these things, which was the interesting, <laughs> interesting, um, you know, opposition or tension that's running through it. But, yeah, I think really it was... I knew that some people uh, might be offended. I think one of the main reasons for that is that for a book about Māori 
relations, Māori Pākehā relations, it has very few Māori people in it. It's a very Pākehā world. But I actually thought that that was what was, I considered that and I considered changing that, but I thought it would be wrong, really, because I thought actually this narrator's world is really white, you know, and she doesn't know many people who are Māori. And so to change that just to try and um, avoid getting any backlash myself would have felt a bit false to me. What I really hoped was if the one thing I can do is start more conversations, then that's a good thing. If we can just start a dialogue where people are less scared or at least more open to talking about issues of land and ownership. Because really by living on stolen land, we are all complicit. And I think that people are scared that if they acknowledge that, they have to kind of get off it straight away. When that's not, it's not like we can all do that. We can't just all up and leave, but we can acknowledge how we are complicit. And we can have conversations about that. And that's sort of at least a starting point in moving forward. Yeah, and start negotiating from that point. Yeah. This willful ignorance. Yeah, definitely. I think it is willfully ignorant now. I think it's willfully ignorant too. You don't acknowledge it. Yeah, yeah, we all know. We all, <laughs> we all know the history now, it's, and it's, we're going to continue to know the history more as it's getting taught in schools and stuff. So it'll be interesting to see, actually, in later generations, mm. you know, how open they are about talking about issues of colonialism in New Zealand and that history. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's kind of exciting. Yeah. Um, the there's a, a interview with um, with George Saunders in the latest Paris Review, um, and he says that. Uh, I was blurting things out about my position in the world that I hadn't even known until I blurted them out. Oh, that's a great line. Um, and I, is that your experience as well? Was it in the act of writing that you were under try, learning about your position in New Zealand or in the world? Yeah, I think, I think I probably knew what I thought my position was in the world. And I think I was probably quite a... I was already felt quite able to kind of be more vocal than I think the narrator is, even by the end of it. Um, but I think that what it forced me to do was to think about the little nuances, like the places where she feels most uncomfortable, or the times at which she wishes she was invisible, or the fears around just getting small things wrong. Like, for example, she goes to give a koha to the marae, um, when she's in Pangara and she realizes she's left the tohutu off of one of the letters and so for that reason she doesn't give it at all she just pockets the twenty dollars and I think that that was actually a really good indicator of her behavior overall you know that fear of getting something wrong completely immobilized her entirely and I think that that's actually quite a Pakiha condition I think a lot of people experience something like that, where they're so worried about mispronouncing something or they're so worried about saying the wrong thing that instead they just disengage. Um, you know, they don't write about it, they don't talk about it because they don't want to get it wrong. And one of the responses I have had is quite a lot of people saying they're related to me and that. And it's not that, I hope my book didn't make them feel like it let them off the hook by relating to it, but it, that also didn't seem to be the response. It was just that they related to it and it made them feel more aware of those behaviours. So hopefully that's a good starting point to changing them. Mm, cool. When, I, when you talk about your character, the narrator, I feel like you understand her, um, you really understand her position. 
and did, did that understanding come from you said like you had conversations and then all of a sudden they start taking on their own did she kind of as you were n- knowing things about her you know what I mean like yeah. you know where she grown up where she um, went to school where, did, did her understanding come out of that yeah I think I think it comes out of knowing those things it comes out of writing those things as there are always those moments where your characters surprise you Mm. and they do something that you wouldn't have imagined them doing but actually you were writing it and in the moment you realize that's exactly what they would do Mm. Um, I think it came out a lot from writing dialogue I found a very useful way to getting to know my characters and then that was one of the things you have to come back at the end and be like does this dialogue (laughs) you know support itself is this uh functional really to have the these many pages with this one conversation it's like no it's not i need three lines from this and i'm going to cut this all but that was a really good exercise for me to know them and i think so she was partially known through having a rattling around the side of my own head and partially known through the actual process of writing but yeah i definitely i feel like i know her intimately and there are parts of her that i think i see in myself so there are probably parts that i know because I see them as reflections of me or um, kind of grotesque, uh, you know, mutilations of parts of myself. Um, but there are other parts that's entirely her. And yeah, I just really, I mean, I find her difficult. I find her her kind of sulking and her quietness really hard to take. But I also understand that she, she doesn't know how to stop. Mm, I think, yeah. I think she'll be okay in her mid-30s. I think so too. I really do. Yeah, some people have um, quite interestingly said stuff to me about how the book really upset them or um, they found it a very sad book. Or they were, yeah, and this just wasn't my experience of it at all. I'm really like, by the end, I'm like, she's fine and she'll be fine, you know. And Tyler says that. She knows when a book is finished, when she knows where the characters are and where she, oh, she where they're going. Yeah, where yeah. they're going. So she, when she leaves a book, she knows exactly where those characters are. That's great. That's um, a really nice way of because everyone kind of asks that. Yeah, I, I definitely feel like I know where all the characters are going mm-hmm. in this one, mm-hmm. um, but particularly the narrator and you know her relationship with Ashi, and I kind of feel like I understand how it's going to pan out, and I think she will be fine, but mm-hmm. she does. She does need to grow up a bit. So I wanted to ask you about the um, the metaphor of the fishbone and the um, laksa. Yeah. And how early that came to you? So that was late, actually, late. putting okay. the fishbone and the laksa. So it's such a great, it's such a great metaphor for for every. I think about that all the time, and the reason I think about it is because I was vegetarian for about three years, but I got really skinny, and I was like. Yeah. <laughs> I was in very unwell vegetarian. I just had cheese on toast. <laughs> yeah. um, and my sister used to go into her house and she used to make this really yummy vegetable soup for me. Yeah. And it wasn't until about the fifth or sixth time that she was showing me this new stock that she had started buying and it was chicken stock. Oh, no. She, had, she always put in her vegetable soup. Yeah. I was like, you can't. You know, <laughs> that was that why is. you were liking it. Yeah, yeah I used to have an ex's mum who... I don't think she liked me very much and we would be sitting around the table and I would be, you know, halfway through my meal and she'd say, you don't mind fish sauce, eh? <laughs> you know? Just so I'd have to be like, oh no, of course not, and then struggle through the the end of my plate. Um, you know, the the first instances of fish bones in the book uh, when she finds fish bones on the lawn and they make her quite paranoid in Whangara. 
And then I became really interested in having Fishbone as a title, which I can't have because Catherine Chidgy uses that word in one of her titles, but I didn't realize this at the time. So I really wanted another reference to Fishbones because I was thinking really about, you know, the North Island being, you know, the fish of Maui and, you know, thinking about that kind of road trip is almost like a hook within it. And so I wanted the image of a fishbone to return and I thought how good to have it in something she's eating. And I love it how, I think it was Lana, she, it's Lana who tells the story of her mother exhuming the body. Oh and yeah. The, um, I won't say anything more, but um, the Coen brothers play really well with this, like this is a true story and names yeah. have changed to protect the... So I love Fargo and I think that that's yeah. where that came from for me. Uh, I, you know, I'm pretty obsessed with it. Um, though I wasn't conscious when I was doing it. So I start a chapter with the line, this is a true story. And what I really liked about starting the chapter was a very deliberate decision to put it at the start was because it then kind of plays with the reader as to whose voice it is. I think there's that question when you read a line like that in a work of fiction at the start of a chapter, it's like, wait, is this the narrator or is this the author talking to me now? And is this story true? When really the story that follows isn't true at all. And there are true stories that are hidden within the book. But I just really liked that like small jolt that someone might get reading that line. This is a true story. Yeah. So, I mean, this book would not be written if it wasn't for Paul Morris. Um, I don't think I ever would have thought that my pipe dream of writing a novel was even possible if I hadn't met Paula. I met her at the end of my undergrad. I was doing a writing paper and she said to me, do you have an idea for a book? And at the time, it was just that idea of the two women in a batch together. And I was like, yeah, I think so. And she was like, I knew you would. You should do the masters next year. And if it hadn't been for that, I, I wouldn't have done it. And I probably never would have written a book. And I definitely wouldn't be doing a PhD right now. I have no idea where I would be. I would probably be much closer to what the narrator actually is, just trying to be an artist while working a minimum wage job. So, you know, Paul has been a huge, really defining person within my life, one of the most defining people, I think. And I don't know many people who I'm more grateful to than her. And then just the Masters was incredible. You know, it was, I really felt, because I'd grown up writing short stories since I was, or writing since I was a kid and I'd been in, many writers groups and many classes and I really thought I'd heard every piece of advice someone could tell you about writing but it wasn't until I was taking that undergrad paper with her that I was like oh my god there is so much to learn there is so much to learn and she's just astounding really with the amount of her knowledge and her generosity at sharing it and her skill really at teaching too she's one of the most engaging teachers that you can ever have and yeah she she's changed my life really and I'm that master's year was one of the best of my life just getting to write and that's why I'm doing the PhD now and doing it here because I can't really imagine writing a book without her as my supervisor you know it's not that I want to show someone what I'm writing very often but it's just that when I want to show it I want to know that the advice I'm getting is 100% honest as it always is from her and it's just always completely accurate. It's just exactly what you need to hear. It's exactly the direction you need to be told to go in, or it's just, yeah, she can read, I think, any type of book 
and know what to say to that person. And then winning the Michael Gifkins Prize, I think that it saved me from what would have otherwise possibly been the quite serious pain of writing a debut novel. You know, it's really hard to get a debut published in New Zealand. And I was able to kind of skip the process of having to send it anywhere. Because really, when the time, at the time I entered, I didn't consider the novel done, but I had a deadline, so I sent it in. And then I went back to editing after that. I slowly started the editing process. And I've, I was pretty low, um, and I was pretty scared. And you don't know when to call it quits and when to say that you're finished, because the idea of sending it off and then getting that rejection and that ruling out one of your, what, three options, you know, was pretty terrifying. And so to have, uh, and then I, I thought that it had already been awarded. I read somewhere that the award was going to come out in March and I realized it was April. I thought, well, that definitely wasn't me then. And actually just on the night that I had that thought, I happened to, for some reason, check uh, my old high school email that I only really use now for like signing up to spam things or buying tickets. So it's all it's all kind of messages from like Sephora and Jetstar, you know? And in amongst there, there was this email to say that I was on the shortlist for the Michael Gifkins and that it was three people and that I had to give them a hard copy of my manuscript so that it could be read by Patricia Grace and Lloyd Jones, which was just incredibly excited and exciting and I was honestly just so happy to get that by and really didn't think it was going to go anywhere and it was really hard not to edit it before printing it off because that was what I wanted to do um but I gave them that version and yeah just to have them choose it for that prize and to have you know their words their kind words that have been able to go onto the cover and the jacket of the book um it gives you a kind of sense of credibility and a confidence that otherwise I don't know whether I would have been able to develop on my own. Yeah, so it's so important for artists, hey, because you don't, yeah. you, you just don't know, especially a novelist, because your mates aren't going to read your novel in the way that they're going to listen to your song or yeah. your poem and tell you, give you some advice. Like yeah. The idea that a friend might spend two weeks reading my novel and giving me feedback I just I can't I can't imagine it the well, way that people's lives are I was very lucky that I had very supportive friends who all wanted to read it and I didn't want any of them to read it right. yeah so I was like no it's not done you can't read it yet I kind of um I really like to work alone quite a lot and not to have my work be seen until I think that I've gone as good as I can get it and then get input but I think one of the things about completing a novel on a master's or you know even getting a good grade for it is that you can think okay I've written a good book for an amateur but you don't know whether that's a good book by any other standards um it's really hard to know and obviously you know you fluctuate between being like not obviously but I fluctuated between being like oh maybe this is a great book this is you know, fantastic, I'm such a genius. And then at other times being like, this is the worst novel that anyone has ever written. Like, this, this is insufferable. No one's going to want to read it. I hope no one reads it. I will be lucky if I don't get published. 
And then when I knew I was being published, there was just that fear of, yeah, maybe I wrote a good book for an amateur, but maybe that's all that is. And actually this is really quite a bad book when you're looking at professional novels. So to have, you know, whenever I'd have those thoughts, I'd be able to remember, well, actually, Patricia Grace really liked it. You know, yeah, yeah, <laughs> Lloyd yeah. Jones liked it. Yeah. What this is making me realise is that people that do interviews are actually, like, I guess you get to a point where you stop thinking about the, the fact that it's recording. Allowed, yeah. Well, it's not the stuff that it's recording. That's fine. It's just that I feel like there are things that I want to make sure that I ask you. Right. You know what I yeah. Mean? Rather than just kind of. Because we can shoot off on a conversation and going yeah. over here and all of a sudden we're like over here talking about laneway. Yeah. <laughs> um, are you going to go to laneway? Um, I wanted to go just to see Julia Jacqueline, but that was that would be a lot of money to spend on that. No, I think I'm marking all yeah. weekend. I have um, one assignment coming in tonight, one assignment coming in tomorrow, and one assignment coming in Monday, and that's 60 each time. All of them have to be turned around within a week, so. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> book Book acknowledges Tangata Whenua or Aotearoa. Art made by Katie Wakefield. Music's made by Glenn Prince. The novel this episode is Attraction by Ruby Porter. It's published by Text Publishing. It's out in bookshops now. You should all go and buy it.